can go home. Do you guys have anything else to do at the school after this? No review sessions, no IMCQs. No, you just get to go. All right. I might have to do a little bit of DNA replication with you before we end because it's a little bit long and this one's a little bit short. And I don't want to miss, miss anything for you guys, so let's get into it. All right, so last class I showed you that little trivia math and told you how in each one of our cells we've got two meters of double-stranded DNA as hereditary material. And that's a pretty big molecule that we've got a package, or molecules, chromosomes, that we've got a package into our nucleus. And this is, you know, and all organisms have this same problem. And this diagram here really shows you the scale of the problem here. Um, so here is the E. coli genome. They have one single circular chromosome. And there is the E. coli that it has, all that DNA has to fit into. So there's a packaging problem. We've got to somehow get these massive molecules into these very small cells or nuclei in the case of eukaryotes. Here's a E. coli, this is, and this is a real diagram. So here's our E. coli cell down there. And what they've done is, you know, E. coli don't have a nucleus. So if we break the cell wall, the DNA is just going to basically explode out of it. And this is what you see here. I just put this because I love this picture. You see all that? It's like, it's like an exploding plate of spaghetti. All right. So we've got to get this DNA into those cells or, in the case of us, uh, the nucleus. And the first way that this can be accomplished is through that... Hmm. That's the first time a dog's ever walked into my class. <laughs> I almost brought my cat today. She had to go to... That would have been fun. <laughs> she was at the vet, and she had to spend some time in my office while I was teaching earlier. All right, so... Aside. Um... So we need to get these big molecules into a small space. And when I was talking about sort of the different levels of describing structures, I talked about this so-called supercoiling. So let's look at prokaryotes here. So prokaryotes, as I me or mentioned, uh, have a circular double-stranded DNA as their genome. And when it's in the relaxed state, you would see this typical open circle configuration. However, we've got to get this into the bacterial cell. And one of the ways that we can make this molecule much smaller is by this so-called supercoiling. And this is essentially just like the telephone cord, right? It's just coils upon coils that make this molecule much smaller than its original relaxed form. In prokaryotes, there are two enzymes that are primarily responsible for this supercoiling. And this is DNA gyrase and an enzyme called topoisomerase 1. Both of these enzymes can introduce supercoiling into a double-stranded DNA. Together with these enzymes that actually 
turn the DNA. They physically turn the DNA to introduce these supercoils. There's also proteins in prokaryotes called HU proteins. In us, the proteins are histone proteins that interact with the DNA and make it packaged up even smaller. So if you looked at a bacteria cell, you would see inside of it what they call the nucleoid. And the nucleoid has a central core right here where we see a bunch of proteins. These include the HU proteins that bind the DNA directly. But at that central core as well are these enzymes that introduce supercoils. So these are the DNA gyrase and the topoisomerase 1. They apply turns to the DNA and introduce these supercoils. So the nucleoid has this protein core with the enzymes and the HU proteins and loops of supercoiled DNA emanating from that central core. Now, when we talk about supercoiling, we can supercoil in two directions or orientations. The first one here is positive supercoiling, and then the other one is negative supercoiling. And the only difference between the two is one is turned one way to generate supercoils, and the other one is turned the other way to generate supercoils. Some people erroneously uh, think that positive supercoiling is going to tighten up the DNA, um, whereas negative supercoiling will loosen it. But they're, just, it's, they're tightening in just opposite orientations. And you can kind of see this by how the blue and the red are sort of overlapping with each other. Now, supercoiling is part of this packaging process. So we see this in eukaryotes and in prokaryotes. The DNA is acted upon by these enzymes like gyrase in the case of prokaryotes and topoisomerases in the case of eukaryotes and prokaryotes. And this is helping to package that DNA into the cell or the nucleus. We also have effects of supercoiling that aid in some of the biological processes. So negative supercoiling helps strand separation, the separation, breaking of the hydrogen bonds and converting double-stranded DNA into single-stranded DNA. Negatively supercoiled DNA, this is an easier process. So we tend to see this in regions where transcription is starting to occur or replication is starting to occur. There's also side effects of biological processes that generate these supercoils. And in the case of DNA replication and transcription, we get a buildup of positive supercoils. And these positive supercoils can build up so much, if they're not corrected, it'll actually halt the process of replication and transcription. So, uh, again, we've got these uh, DNAs getting acted upon by these enzymes here. And... If the DNA has free ends, right, and an enzyme just goes and turns it, the body of the DNA is just going to rotate on itself and nothing's really going to happen. And so in prokaryotes that have circular genomes, this, it's quite obvious that we're going to get a generation of supercoiling. In us, we have linear DNA molecules in our nuclei, the chromosomes. 
So you would think that if they turn that, that linear molecule, it'll just rotate freely. But the reality, of is that, the reality is, is that the DNA in our nucleus is attached to things like the nuclear membrane, for example. There's scaffolding proteins in the nucleus that the DNA is attached to. So even though they're not circular molecules, there's no free end that can rotate by itself within um, eukaryotes. Now, this diagram shows the supercoiling that gets generated when we're under carrying out DNA replication or transcription. And I need to borrow somebody's loopy necklace thing. Can I, yours, is, yours is closer. Can I borrow yours? This red thing around your neck? Yeah. All right. And I'm going to need an assistant here. All right. So I've got this, I've got this uh, double-stranded DNA. It's in a helix, right? Yeah? All right. So just hold that one in there. So Because we don't have any free ends, right? Now, when DNA replication occurs and transcription occurs, we have polymerases opening up the DNA. So that's what I'm going to do right now. So I'm going to open it up. And when they start to transcribe or replicate, they're going to move along this helix. Okay. Now, look what happens up here. If I push forward as if I'm the DNA polymerase, and I move forward, you can see it gets tighter. Right? Try it at home. All right? It gets tighter, and eventually it'll get so tight that I can't move my finger. All right? Now, look what happens behind. Behind, we get rotation the other way. That's getting looser. So we've got positive supercoils building up ahead of the polymerase and negative supercoils building up behind the polymerase. There you go. Thanks a lot. So try that at home. So this is a problem. The negative supercoiling has to get fixed because it's kind of loosening up the DNA. When we've already finished transcribing, so we're going to have to tighten that up a little bit. But what's more concerning is the buildup of the positive supercoils. Just like you saw my finger, it eventually got so tight I couldn't push through the helix anymore. right? And that would halt DNA replication and transcription. Lucky for us, or lucky for bacteria there is an enzyme that relieves the positive supercoiling that gets built up during DNA replication and transcription. And this enzyme is DNA gyrase. Okay? DNA gyrase. DNA gyrase relieves the buildup of positive supercoiling by actively introducing negative supercoiling. Okay? So it's, it's introducing turns the other way. Now, this is cool for us because we have a drug that can target DNA gyrase and inhibit its activity, and this is ciprofloxacin. All right? It's an antibiotic. So you apply this antibiotic to a replicating population of bacteria. Gyrase is going to be inhibited, and we're going to get a buildup of positive supercoils ahead of the DNA polymerase. Ultimately, that positive supercoiling is going to build up so much because gyrase is inhibited, replication will halt, and that's going to be the end of those bacteria. All right? So this is a very valuable antibiotic that works by facilitating the buildup of positive supercoiling because we're inhibiting DNA gyrase. All right. Now let's look at 
uh, these, these enzymes themselves. So I told you about topoisomerase 1. Topoisomerase 1 is found in both prokaryotes and eukaryotes. And the way that it uh, relieves or changes supercoiling is that it breaks one of the backbones of the DNA. So here's our double-stranded DNA, right? We've got hydrogen bond be bonding between each strand. Here's our backbone that contains the sugar phosphates, right? The topoisomerase 1 comes in, and it breaks one of the phosphodiester bonds and forms a covalent bond with that strand. So in other words, this, this one strand is now nicked. If there is supercoiling, this portion can now freely rotate on its axis. So we've got our double-stranded DNA that's been supercoiled. We break one of the strands, and now the strands can rotate on the other intact backbone. So if there's positive supercoiling built up, for example, we break one of the strands and we'll get spontaneous unraveling or relief of that positive supercoiling. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. And then after that supercoiling has been relieved, our topoisomerase is going to break its covalent bond and the phosphodiester bond will be restored. Okay, and we'll have our double-stranded DNA back again with less supercoiling. Now, there's another class of topoisomerases. This is called topoisomerase 2. In eukaryotes, we call it topoisomerase 2. In prokaryotes, we call it gyrase. They behave the same way, but they're evolutionarily distinct, so we give them different names. All right? Now, what topoisomerase 2 does is it breaks both backbones. All right, And it actually has a couple of functions. It has a detangling function. You can imagine all these DNA molecules wrapped around each other. They can get tangled. And sometimes, you know, when you've got a ball of string or a fishing line, sometimes you've got to cut the line to get it untangled, right? And that's what topoisomerase 2 does. It can also introduce supercoiling by using ATP as an energy source, Okay. So let's look at this feature. It's kind of neat. So here, uh, the blue and the green, that's our topoisomerase. It's holding one double helix. Okay, so this is one double-stranded DNA. And the red one here is another double-stranded DNA. They're tangled. Okay? The first thing that uh, topoisomerase 2 or gyrase does is it breaks both backbones in this one strand of DNA, the orange one. So it breaks both backbones, and then it allows the passing of this other double helix through, and then it rejoins the orange DNA back together. Okay? It passes through what they call a gate. All right? And now these strands are untangled. All right? And they can also, as I mentioned, rotate the DNA by holding one of the strands and rotating another one using ATP as energy to generate also supercoiling, okay? And in the case of gyrase, it's generating negative supercoiling to counteract the positives that build up. Everybody okay? Yeah. That's right. It's putting, putting back together this broken one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
All right. Okay, so that's prokaryotes there. Now let's move on to eukaryotes. So here is our human karyotype, the metaphase chromosomes. And these metaphase chromosomes are the most compacted form of DNA that we find in eukaryotes. These chromosomes interact, or the DNA in our chromosomes interact with proteins, just like prokaryote DNA did. Prokaryotic DNA interacted with these HU proteins as part of the packaging. And eukaryotes have a similar type of protein that we call the histone proteins. The DNA plus the histone proteins is what we call chromatin. All right? And this is how it's formed. We've got a bunch of different histones. They're called histone H3, histone H4, histone H2B, histone H2A. And these come together, two each, to form what is called the histone octamer. It's a disc-like molecule that you see there in green. Now, histones tend to be positively charged. DNA is negatively charged. So they're going to attract to each other. All right? And this will allow the DNA to wrap around and package around this histone octamer. There is one other histone called histone H1, and only one of them occurs in this structure. Um, and I'll show you what it does in a, in a second here. All right? So, as I mentioned, we've got a lot of uh, different amino acids and histones, but uh, one of the ones that are prominent are lysine and arginine. And these are largely positively charged unless they're modified in some way. And this is what facilitates the interaction between DNA and the histones to form this compact structure, uh, the chromatin. All right. And this is how they wor wrap around each other here. So two of histone 2A, two of uh, H2B, two of H4, and two of H3. That's what we call our histone octamer. And of course, we can have supercoiling associated with this packaging as well. Now, if you look at the initial stages of chromatin formation, the first structure that we see is what we call the 10 nanometer fiber. All right. And if you look on an electron microscope, this is what it looks like. We've got DNA racked around our nucleosome, it's called. That's the histone octamer. And then there'll be a piece of DNA that links to the next nucleosome octamer. This piece of DNA here is called the linker DNA. And if you go back here, there's about 183 base pairs between a core particle, the nucleosome, and the linker DNA. So this distance from here to about here. This will come back to you when we talk about apoptosis a little bit later on, so keep it in the back of your mind. All right. So this is the initial stages of chromatin formation here, this beads on a string or 10 nanometer fiber. Now the next for, uh, structure involves interactions between H1s. Now these H1s do a couple of things. One, they kind of act like the finger when you're trying to wrap, uh, put a bow on a, a birthday present, right? You know when you're trying to tie the bow, and if you've got nobody there to stick your finger on, right, the bow always unravels, 
Yeah. So the histone H1 kind of acts like your finger right there holding the DNA wrapped around the nucleosome. Now the other role that H1 has is in the formation of the next structure, which we call the 30 nanometer fiber. And this involves interactions between adjacent histone H1s. And it looks like this. So we've got H1s interacting together. And what essentially they're doing is they're bringing the linker DNA closer together. They're bringing adjacent beads or nucleosomes closer together and forms the next level of compaction. Okay? And this is what it looks like under an electron micrograph. And then finally, the last level of compaction is our metaphase chromosome. This is the most highly compacted state of DNA in our genomes, and of course it occurs during metaphase of the cell cycle here. And this is going to involve the nucleosomes, it's going to involve other uh, DNA-associated proteins, and it's going to involve supercoiling to get to this level of compaction. All right, here's, this is kind of like the, the E. coli picture I showed you. This is a metaphase chromosome that's been depleted of histones, the ones that form the nucleosome, octamer. You take away those histones, and look what happens to the DNA. It just explodes out like, again, another bowl of spaghetti here. And look what's left behind. This is the leftovers, the remnants of some of the other proteins that are involved in the formation of the metaphase chromosome. And you can even see that sort of same sort of shadow or that same structure of our metaphase chromosomes. It's kind of neat. Here's another one. I just love these pictures, right? So it just shows how important those nucleosomes, those histone proteins are in the packaging of DNA within our cells and into our nucleus. So we've got a range of compaction, right? We've got um, our double helix. This is the Watson and Crick double helix. It actually doesn't exist in nature, right? DNA is always associated with proteins. So we can have different levels of compaction, and depending on where we are in the cell cycle, where we are in the genome as well, so there's global effects that affect the whole genome, and we can have regional changes in compaction of the DNA as well. Okay? So some regions will be tight, really tight and packed up, and other one regions will be less condensed. And that's what euchromatin and heterochromatin are. Euchromatin is decondensed DNA, so closer down to this end. And genes that are in those regions of the genome are typically transcriptionally active, or at least they're available for transcription. Heterochromatin is highly condensed DNA, and genes in those regions of the genome are transcriptionally inactive. The metaphase chromosome is virtually transcriptionally inactive at that stage in the cell cycle. There's no transcription going on, or very little. All right. Now, how do these? How do we go from euchromatin to heterochromatin? How do we go from on to off with respect to gene expression? And I talked about this a little bit last class, and it involves DNA methylation, that modification of cytosine by the addition of the methyl group in position five, and this is accomplished by that enzyme DNA methyltransferase. Now, methylation itself actually doesn't facilitate 
the formation of heterochrobotin. But it's the first step in this process. So DNA methyltransferase comes along, adds methyl groups to position 5 on cytosines in places in our genome. That's the first step. So, and this is accomplished by DNA methyltransferase, and in particular, initially, it's an enzyme called DNA methyltransferase 3. This is what we call the de novo methyltransferase. It allows, it can methylate DNA that has not previously been methylated. So here's DNMT3, and it's added some methyl groups to cytosines on this double-stranded DNA. Okay? The next thing that happens is we get another protein called methylcytosine binding protein. And just as the name says, it binds to methylated C's. So it comes in, binds to the methylated C's on the DNA, and its job is to recruit an enzyme called histone deacetylase 1, or HDAC1. Now what HDAC1 does, this is the one that actually causes heterochromatin formation. It deacetylates amino acid residues of the histones. Okay, I'll show you how, why that's important. But by deacetylating the amino acid residues of the histones, particularly things like lysine, we're going to increase the positive charge on the histones, and the DNA is going to package or be attracted more tightly to the histone. All right, so this is what it looks like. So here's lysine, and it's got an acetyl group. When lysine is acetylated, it has a neutral charge. So the DNA is going to be neither attracted or repelled from it. However, if we deacetylate, if we remove that acetyl group, lysine becomes positively charged. The DNA will be more attracted to it, will get DNA compaction and condensation, and that region of the genome becomes transcriptionally inactive and unavailable. All right, so this process of deacetylating is accomplished by histone deacetylases. We also have an enzyme that does the reverse, that of course acetylates lysine residues, and this is called histone acetyltransferase. And these two are involved in gene regulation. Okay? Everybody okay with that? Yeah? We're doing pretty good, so we'll get to be able to get to do some DNA replication today. All right, the last little bit. So this relationship between DNA methylation of cytosine and gene expression and euchromatin and heterochromatin formation is a very clear relationship. We understand this very well. And so if DNA is methylated, it's heterochromatin. Genes tend to be shut off. If the cytosines aren't methylated, and we don't have uh, deacetylation, so the lysine residues are acetylated. We have euchromatin, and the genes are available for transcription. There are a number of other modifications of the histones, and these include things like methylation, adding a methyl group to the, the amino acids, phosphorylation, and ubiquitination. The relationship between these modifications is not quite as clear. For example, there may be some amino acid residues in the histones that if you phosphorylate them, 
you cause euchromatin formation. But if you phosphorylate other amino acids, you make heterochromatin. Okay? And various combinations and permutations between methylation, phosphorylation, ubiquitination. And this is where a lot of the work is right now, trying to decipher what we call the histone code. All right? So what combinations of modifications elicit heterochromatin formation or elicit euchromatin formation? It's a very complex task. All right, let's do a couple clickers, and then we'll get clipped through a little bit of DNA replication, and then we'll let you guys go home. Almost there. Before I, I click this over, somebody came up on the break and asked, you know, what, what level of detail do we need to know about the drugs? And, and here's the answer, at least for this term. Um, you, you need to know what the drugs are used to treat, and you need to know their mechanism of action. Okay? Which is pretty easy because they almost all had the same mechanism of action, right? They were chain terminators, and they did so because there either wasn't a free 3' OH group or the OH group was unavailable to form the phosphodiester bond, and they caused synth termination of synthesis, right? Once you get to farm in term five, I don't know, probably got to know everything, along with the 800 drugs you've got to memorize. Okay, so let's check it. Oops. All right. Yes, so nucleosides lack the 5' phosphate. When they have the 5' phosphate, they are a nucleotide. Great. All right, one more here. Don't pack your stuff away yet, because remember, we're doing a little DNA replication here yet. Otherwise, I won't get finished in time next on Monday. We'll try to get out early anyways. <coughs> I may not be able to speak much longer anyways. Somebody gave me a cold. All right, let's take a look. I think we're almost there. Hmm, good. Yeah, this is a, there's, a, there's some, you know, the ampicillin, that's kind of the red herring, right? You know, part of the, part of the process of these vignette-style questions is throwing away all the crap and, 
and and figuring out what really the question is, right? And and what happened here is we had an E. coli that normally should not be able to grow when CPRO is present, right? Because CPRO is going to target gyrase. If gyrase is mutated, though, the drug may not be able to interact with it and inhibit its activity. Yeah? You get that? All right. Okay, let's see if we can do... Uh, let's just got to save this session, and then we'll do a little bit of... Maybe we'll save this session. Maybe not. There we go. Whoops. Save session. This is such a pain. And it's not letting me. Okay, good. Good. Okay, we won't do that. We'll try it later. All right, let's do some DNA replication, let you guys go home. All right. Okay, DNA replication. So this is that one part of our uh, central dogma of molecular biology. And, of course, this process is occurring every cell cycle during S phase, synthesis phase. And, uh, so, and this is the, part, the process of this is to allow the transmission of the hereditary material to a daughter cell during cell division or potentially um, the next generation. And uh, if you look at bacteria, this happens very, very fast in yeast, but a, uh, so less than an hour in yeast, but one and a half hours, and in cultured mammalian cells, about 24 hours or so. We didn't really know how it all worked out, but it turns out it works by this, what we call the semi-conservative model. You guys can look at these models. This one here, uh, the conservative one, I call it the photocopier model. So you got, because you, after replication, you end up with the same orig or original copy and then a fresh new copy. And this one, I don't know what you call it. It's just a mismatch all over the place here, where you get after replication, you got molecules with pieces of original on both strands and pieces of new on both strands. Very unusual. So the semi-conservative model is the way it works. And just briefly, essentially what happens is our original DNA molecule separates into single-stranded DNA, and then each of those strands is used as a template to synthesize a new daughter strand. So the new double-stranded DNA is going to contain one strand that is the original and one strand that is the newly synthesized DNA. And this is what we call the semi-conservative model. This is the guy that started it all off. You don't have to care about his, care about his name. But he was the guy that uh, discovered the first enzyme, the first DNA polymerase, that is involved in DNA replication in prokaryotes. So he called it DNA polymerase 1. You'll see in a few minutes that it actually doesn't do that much. But it was the first one, so why not call it 1? Um, so if we want to synthesize DNA, this is the recipe book. And this is really, if we're in the laboratory synthesizing DNA, this is what we're going to put into the test tube. And we'll build from this and we'll go into the cell uh, probably on Monday. So the first thing that we need is our building blocks, right? And we're building DNA, so we need deoxynucleoside triphosphates, right? Those are our building blocks for DNA. 
So we need A, G, C, and T in their deoxynucleoside form and their triphosphate form. We need a piece of DNA to act as a template because we're going to read one strand of DNA and use it to build a second strand. We need a polymerase, DNA polymerase, which is going to take the incoming nucleotides and form a phosphodiester bond with that 3'OH group of the previous nucleotide and with the phosphoric acid group of the incoming nucleotide. Lots of enzymes need ions to get them active, and polymerase needs magnesium. And we need a primer to start things off. And this primer, um, you'll see during DNA replication, is a small segment of RNA, and it's providing a free 3'OH group that the DNA polymerase can initiate replication from, from that 3'OH group. We'll see how this all goes. This is what it looks like. So here is our template strand right here. So this is after the DNA is unwound to form two, double strand, uh, two single stranded DNAs. All right. And here is our primer. This you'll see a little bit later on is added to the template by an enzyme called primase. It's an RNA molecule, but the important point is that it provides a 3'OH group for the DNA polymerase to utilize and start replication. The DNA polymerase is going to look at the template, and here we, need, uh, we have a G in the template, so we need to bring in a cytidine uh, in its triphosphate form. We're going to cleave off two of the phosphates, that will liberate pyrophosphate, and that cleavage is our energy source to form the phosphodiester bond between the 3'OH group and the remaining phosphate. Now, one of the important things to remember or see here is the way that the template is read. So remember I told you that synthesis always builds from the 3' end. So we're synthesizing in the 5' to three prime direction. We're reading the template in the three prime to five prime direction. Because remember, the strands on a double-stranded DNA are in anti-parallel orientation. Okay? All right, so this is it just again here. Here's our template. We've got our newly synthesized DNA strand. We've got a free three prime OH group from the previously incorporated nucleotide. There's a G next in our template, so we've got to bring in a C. And the C is in the triphosphate form. We're going to cleave off pyrophosphate. That's our energy source. And we're going to make a phosphodiester bond from the 3'OH group to the remaining phosphate from the incoming nucleotide. This OH group is so important. We need that for continuation of synthesis, and that's why those antiviral drugs and those anti-cancer drugs work. Those drugs get incorporated. There's no 3'OH group here. Synthesis stops, right? Yeah. All right. Just another ways of looking at it here, right? So again, our template, we're building... 5' prime to 3', prime, always adding on the 3'OH OH group, adding nucleoside triphosphates, liberating pyrophosphate, 
forming that phosphodester bond, synthesizing five to three, and reading the template in the three prime to five prime direction, the opposite direction. And just to remind you about our drugs, right? So these drugs work because they're lacking that three prime OH group. So keep that in mind. They're the whole group, except for um, uh, Desitaba and the methylate, uh, hypomethylator, all follow this same mechanism, right? There's either no three prime OH group or it's unavailable to form that phosphodiester bond. So it makes it easy to learn. You just maybe need to know what it's used for. And sometimes, you know, things know some of the details about the kinases, especially like acyclovir, right? Because that's that neat one. The phosphorylation by the viral kinase makes it very specific to infected cells. All right. Here's some other ones here. Cytosine arabinoside. Just again to remind you, there is a 3' OH group here. So it's a little bit confusing, but this OH group in position 2 pushes this OH to the side a bit, making it unavailable for... Um, um, to form a phosphodiester bond, all right? It can also cause kinks in the DNA when it gets incorporated as well, and this causes strand breakage and things like that. And these drugs are used as anti-cancer drugs. So these are being incorporated, if they can, by um, our DNA polymerases, eukaryotic DNA polymerases um, specifically. All right. After this, we'll, we'll let you guys go. I think we'll be okay for Monday. Um, so DNA polymerases have one activity that's common to all of them, and this is what we call 5' prime to 3' prime synthesis activity. This is what I've just been describing to you, right? Bringing in a triphosphate, nucleoside triphosphate, building from the 3' prime end, from that free 3' prime OH group, synthesizing from the 5' prime to 3' prime direction. Okay? So that's one activity of DNA polymerases, 5 to 3 polymerase activity. Now, when DNA replication is occurring, sometimes the polymerase brings in the wrong nucleoside triphosphate. Sometimes it just makes a mistake. Sometimes it gets tricked. And here's an example of how DNA polymerases can get tricked. And this is what we call a tautomeric shift. And this is how it works. So here's, here we have a template strand, right? And it's got all A's in it. So the newly synthesized strand should have all T's. Now, T can sometimes undergo what's called a tautomeric shift. It involves prot proton changes and movement of I think hydrogen, hydrogen, I think. Um, and what happens is, is that T's, when they undergo this tautomeric shift, can behave as if they are, C, uh, if they are C's. Right? Yeah. So, wait a minute, the other way around. The C can behave like a T. C's can undergo a tautomeric shift and behave like T's. So what's happened in this example right here is that the C has undergone a tautomeric shift. It's behaving like a T. And it gets incorporated 
into this growing DNA strand. Now these tautomeric shifts are unstable and very transient. So the C got incorporated when it was behaving like a T, and then once it got incorporated, it shifted back and became a C again. Now that C is incorporated and it can't form hydrogen bonding with A. So we get this part of the DNA where there's a lack of hydrogen bonding between the strands. It might form like a little flappy end without hydrogen bonding, or it may form a little bit of a bubble where there's no hydrogen bonding. And this needs to get fixed, right? Because this is a mutation, right? We've changed the base sequence of the original DNA. And if it wasn't for this second activity that DNA polymerase has, we would have a very rapid buildup of mutations. And this second activity is what we call five prime to three prime proofreading activity. Five prime to three prime exonuclease activity. So polymerases build DNA, exonuclease choose DNA at the ends. Okay? Now how it works is that when the there's a, an error like this, either in a tautomeric shift or just an error in itself, we've got this region where we don't have proper hydrogen bonding. The polymerase itself recognizes that bubble, that lack of hydrogen bonding, and the three prime to five prime exonuclease activity becomes activated. And it's going to start to chew backwards until it reaches a region where there's normal hydrogen bonding. So in this case, it's going to chew off the C, and then it's going to reactivate the 5' prime to 3' prime polymerase activity. So the process of synthesis is kind of go forward, go forward, go forward, and then if you make a mistake, we go back, and then we go forward again, and then we go back, and then we go forward again, and then I fall off the stage. Right? This is the process. And because of this proofreading activity, we have a very low incidence of mutation in our genome. So we're very thankful for that because otherwise cancer would be rampant. All right, guys, I'm going to let you guys go. And I guess I'll see you on Monday. Have a good weekend. Try to have some fun.